Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his series, Everything Over Nothing, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you enjoy. Now, here's the deal. Brandon Bostic was fired immediately after that play. He's no longer a Green Bay Packer. He had one job, one responsibility. On an onside kick, there's usually about three or four guys that are on the front line, and the one job, the one thing that they have to do is just block the kickoff team and allow the best receivers, the Green Bay Jordy Nelson receivers, to be wide open and just catch the ball. Brandon Bostic, for whatever reason, he forgets his one job and his one duty. And behind him, wondering how you could forget your one job, your one, one duty, is Jordy Nelson. Now, Jordy Nelson on the Green Bay Packers has made $56 million, okay? And, and here's what you need to know about Jordy Nelson. He's a white guy from a farm in Kansas, a small farm boy. And he has sure hands. In fact, he works 12 hours on his farm today. He's a retired football player. He was an All-American at K-State. He was an All-American basketball player uh, um, coming out of high school. He was a track athlete. This guy was thinking to himself, as the ball popped up off Brandon Bostick's shoulder pad, what are you doing? You had one job. You had one duty. Remember this guy? Uh, One of my favorite coaches. Chicago Bears, Mike Ditka. Ditka was famously known for saying and simplifying the game of football into to one thing. He would tell his players often, you have, you have one job, one duty. The guy that lines up in front of you, beat him. If you beat that one guy throughout the game, they will win. Give you a Mandalorian reference. Mandalorian had one job, one duty to deliver Baby Yoda, right, Grogu, to the Jedi and to get him the training that one thing, there's only one thing that he had to do, one main responsibility that it all came down to. What if, what if we could just take down all the complexities of life, all the complexities even of the spiritual life and our relationship with God, and boil it down to just one main thing, one central duty. Wouldn't it be great if all the many things that we think about throughout the week, we could just boil it down to just one thing and, and do that one thing? I want you to think about this. You guys are married. How many of you are married out there? The spouses, the majority of us are married that are here today. As a, as a husband, as a wife, you have one responsibility, just one main duty. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, what's your main, main responsibility? Love your wife. Wives, what's your main responsibility? Submit and respect your husband. There's just one thing that you have to do. Paul boiled down his entire life into one thing. He said he considers everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When John wrote his gospel, all the miracles that he recorded— Everything that was written up until the end of that gospel was written for one main purpose, one main thing, so that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, 
Jesus leaves the church with one responsibility, make disciples, one main duty. Jesus himself taught one duty of all of the Christian life for all of God's people at all times everywhere to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And just like all of these examples, after everything is said and done in Ecclesiastes, it comes down to one main thing and one main duty. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. Here's what the ESV says. This is the whole duty of man. This morning, we are going to finish up our our sermon series in Ecclesiastes. And we're going to talk about this one main responsibility, this one thing that we are called to do at the end of this book. And on a day when we pretty much all stop and and watch the game, here's here's how I want to flesh this out. There's, There's three components, I think, that Solomon talks about when he talks about this one main thing of fearing God. First, our heart's greatest desire is a desire for beauty. So we fear God with our heart. Second, our mind's greatest search is a search for truth, and so we fear God with our mind. Thirdly, God's greatest choice, or our will's greatest choice, excuse me, is a choice for good. And so fear God with our will. We're going to talk about beauty, truth, and goodness. And these three things, beauty, truth, and goodness, are actually very, very famous. They're widely known by the ancient Greek philosophers. They were called the transcendentals. They are timeless attributes of being. Think about truth, goodness, and beauty. These three things express the deepest realities with a divine origin and a source that bring together truth and reality. All of it comes to the existence of God and his love for the world. Truth, goodness, and beauty. And here's what the ancient Greek philosophers believed that I think Solomon even touches on here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you can find what is really true, your mind will ultimately be satisfied. If you can experience what is really beautiful, your heart will be content. And if you can choose what is really good, those choices will be pleasing to others and contribute to God's society and to a culture and benefit that culture. Peter Kreeft puts it this way. There are three things that will never die. Truth, goodness, and beauty. And those three are capitalized for a reason. These are the only three things that we never get bored with and we never will for all of eternity because they are three attributes of God and therefore of all God's creation. I'll read that again. There are three things that will never die. Truth, goodness, and beauty. They're, they're, these are the only three things that we will never get bored with and never will for all eternity because they are three attributes of God and therefore of all God's creation. All right, number one in your outline as we look to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 here. Number one, our heart's greatest desire is a desire for beauty. So fear God with your heart. Look down at verse eight of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It starts out and it goes like this. Very familiar uh, refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, Hold your place in chapter 12 and turn back to the very first chapter in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I want you to look down at verse 2. 
We just read, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 sounds eerily similar, almost the exact same, just slightly different. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now listen, the preacher is ending his book the exact same way he started it. And so Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 and 12 verse 8 function as bookends. They are the beginning and the end, and they put together everything in between. And the key word, of course, that we've seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel, and we've talked highly about that throughout the sermon series. It literally means breath, vapor, or fleeting. Riken calls this word vanity the preacher's multi-purpose metaphor to express life in a fallen world. And here's what he means. When the preacher calls life vain in vanity, he is saying that it is ephemeral. It is fleeting. It is temporary. It is here one second, it is gone the next. Life simply comes and it goes. We are reminded a lot of, of passages like Psalm 39, verse 11. It tells us that surely all mankind is, is mere breath. Or James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so, in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, we end right where we started with vanity of vanities. However, the preacher is not simply repeating himself here. There's something a little bit different that's going on at the end of the book as compared to what was happening at the beginning. We are not the same people now that we've been all the way through Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, we are different than we were when the preacher started in chapter one. And reading this book has given us a much bigger perspective and it has shifted our focus on this life and on what vanity actually is. The preacher has taught us that there are many things that are extremely vain, fleeting and temporary. In chapter one, verse three, he told us that our work is vanity. We gain nothing from our toil. In chapter two, verse one, he said that our pleasures, the desires of our heart are vain. In chapter two, verse 15, he said human wisdom is vanity because guess what? The fool and the wise man, they both experience the same fate. They both die. In chapter four, verse one, the preacher said that power is vanity. In chapter five, verse 10, he said that money is vanity. All of these things are fleeting. They are temporary. They are here one second. They are gone the next. And all of those things can be pursued in one of two ways. I think when, when Solomon closes the book in chapter 12, what he's laying out for us is something that the, the wisdom literature does throughout the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible. And that is he's giving us a choice. He's telling us all that we can live our life in one of two ways. Knowing that we are in a fallen world and that so many things are temporary. You can either live your life under the sun or you can live your life looking beyond the sun into eternity and into an eternal God. If we choose the, later, the latter option, God will grant us a, a deep meaningfulness and significance and a joy in our life that we would never experience without him. 
If I could summarize the whole book of Ecclesiastes, if I could just put it down into, into one very simple phrase, one simple concept, here's what I would say. Without God, your life is meaningless, insignificant, and nothing you do ultimately matters. Why would it matter? All you're going to do is live, breathe, die, and then it's done. But with God, your life has meaning, significance, and everything you do ultimately matters. Without God, there is nothing. With God, there is everything. Without God, you have nothing to hope for. With God, you have everything to hope for, for eternity in a relationship with him. Ecclesiastes is begging us to look beyond the world and beyond that which is temporary into something that is eternal, that can give us hope and significance and an identity. And who better to teach us this, this vital life lesson than Solomon, right? I love all the verbs that you have in your uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Look at verse 9. It describes the life of Solomon here, our, our preacher. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught, just pay, pay special attention to these verbs, he taught the people knowledge. He weighed, he studied, he arranged many proverbs with great care. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. He wrote words of truth. Solomon was an industrious man. When he gave himself to this quest to find meaning in life, he was all in. Now, one verb that describes Solomon's life and his industrious ambitions was that he weighed things. And this is the one time that that verb form occurs in Hebrew in all of the Old Testament. It's related to the noun that, that has to do with scales for measurement. Think of uh, weighing scales, balancing the scales with weights and, and their just proportions. Solomon literally measured life in wisdom. And he was trying to balance it all. He was trying to find meaning through life in a fallen world. And one of the first areas that he measures is his desires, his deep longings, the things that he finds pleasure and satisfaction in. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. That phrase, words of delight, is one of the finest phrases to describe Scripture, the truth of God's Word. And it teaches us at least a couple of things. Number one, it teaches us that God is not an almighty killjoy. His words are delightful. His words bring pleasure. His words bring joy. Just like Travis was saying, we gather together as people and, and we rejoice together and we sing songs and we have a delight in God because of his words of delight. God is not a grumpy old man who is displeased with his people, always frowning upon any, any sign of joy or excitement or fun that Christians could have. God created joy. God is the person, he is the object of our greatest joy. We find satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure in him because God is beautiful. In God, we find the essence, the physical form, and the truth of beauty that is found, found in no other person and no other thing that this world can offer. And I want to just stop and, and talk about this, words of delight, or, or what we might say is words of beauty. Thomas Aquinas is, was one of the first systematic theologians 
whoever uh, wrote and contributed to the, to the history of the church, and he defined beauty very specifically. He said, beauty, or, or perhaps delights here in Ecclesiastes, is that which being seen is pleasing. Beauty is, is something which, when it is seen, it brings a pleasing attitude to our hearts. And beauty has the greatest power, delight has the greatest power over our hearts. Beauty itself is derived from both goodness and truth. That which is not good cannot be beautiful. That which is not true cannot be beautiful. But if something is true and if something is good, then it has all the qualities that are necessary to to be labeled and to be understood as beautiful and as delightful. God's word is beautiful because God's word is good because he, in his essential nature, is a good, sovereign God. He is also truth. And therefore, since we go through the lens of God's truth and God's goodness, we can finally land at the conclusion that he, in the truth of the gospel, is beautiful. It is delightful. Folks, this is why so many addictions come from something that seems to be beautiful. A lot of us are are tempted by sin, and a lot of us have things that we struggle with in our life because it appears to us to be beautiful. Whether it's an image on a screen or Gollum's obsession with the ring, his precious beauty, even if it lacks goodness and even if it lacks truth, convinces us and lies to us that it is beautiful, that sin can be beautiful and delighted in. Therefore, the only effective cure for addiction must be something that is more beautiful than the addicted thing itself, than the agent of the addiction. Aquinas also said, the only thing powerful enough to overcome an evil passion is a more powerful, good passion. And so we exchange the beauty of things that this world finds as good and delightful for the one beauty and the one truth and the goodness that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. He can be the only addiction in our hearts and lives that will not ultimately ruin us. Because Solomon, this is what Solomon means by by fearing God and pursuing words of beauty or words of delight. Anything that you desire, anything that you find more beautiful than God, any truth that you think is more beautiful than the truth of the gospel will ultimately destroy you. It will ruin your life and ruin your heart. But the heart's greatest desire is desire for beauty. And when we fear God, we find him to be the most beautiful and the gospel truth to be the most beautiful thing in our life. Number two, in your outlines, number two this morning. The heart's greatest desire is desire for beauty and so fear God in your heart. The mind's greatest search is the search for truth. And so fear God with your mind. And I want to just look at the last part of verse 10 in Ecclesiastes 12. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and he uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Now, words of delight is almost a a parenthetical, a, a parallel expression, excuse me, to words of truth. It almost looks the exact same way in Hebrew as you read through verse 10. And our culture has all but given up on this idea of truth. We're postmodern, we're past this. 
There's no more need for, obtruth, for truth and there's no need for objective truth. Postmoderns will reject any truth that has to be assumed but cannot be demonstrated. So if you can't demonstrate, if you can't physically prove that it's true, guess what? I'm not going to believe that it's true. And we're going to redefine truth. Now we're going to talk about things that are absolutely true versus things that are just sometimes true and sometimes not true. Language for the postmodern itself is arbitrary. It's incapable of disclosing true meaning. Uh, Postmoderns typically frown on meta-narratives, on stories that teach life lessons and that teach a greater truth beyond all things and and guide us into the way that we want to live. They typically pick up ideas from Nietzsche that that meta-narratives and stories are just a quest for power in the hands of somebody who can manipulate and control another person. Philosophers, of course, will argue that, that truth includes statements that correspond to reality. Truth includes statements that correspond to reality. And so I might be looking at Don Dunn here down the aisle, and, and I might be saying that as I'm looking at Don, um, this pen that I hold in my hand is a red pen. Is that a, is that a true statement that corresponds to reality? You guys can see that it's a red pen. You know that it's true because of the things that we're saying and because you're here to experience that reality, and so therefore truth can be confirmed. Truth is always about something or someone. The question, what is true, is, is one of the easiest questions, and Pilate was actually quite a, an imbecile when you think about the text that's written. What is, what is truth? answer is very simple. It's, it's what's real. Truth is being. It's what's there. It's what's in front of you. Ah, but can't you see reality is, is so subjective, the postmodern quips. There is no objective reality. You see this red pen, but I see a pen that might just have a red cap that doesn't tell me that it's actually a red pen. If there is no objective reality, then all of our thoughts, including all of the thoughts in this sermon and all of the thoughts that you have, and even including the thoughts of the postmodern, are totally worthless. Postmodern, but my thoughts are worthwhile. My thoughts actually mean something. Is that an objective truth that I'm supposed to believe about your thoughts? Or is that just subjective instead? All you have to do with a postmodern mind is give them enough rope and they will eventually hang themselves or walking contradictions in many senses of the word. Truth is about something, and that truth corresponds to reality. All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And so when Solomon wrote words of truth, speaking of reality, it corresponds to that which is orthodox, and it corresponds to that which reveals the truth of Jesus and the truth of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. Truth is embodied in a person, in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is an objective reality that we can take as ultimately true. The Hebrew word for truth in in verse 10, how you pronounce it, is emet. And it is a highly significant word whenever you see it throughout the Old Testament. At the core of the meaning of emet, this word means certainty. 
or firmness. It's used to describe the the strong arms of a parent holding a helpless child, that they are supported and they are cared for and they are firmly, certainly supported by them. Strength and support correlate to what is true with the image of pillars in the Old Testament, the pillars at the at the gate of the, of the tabernacle in the temple, stood for truth. In one Hebrew stem, this word for true means to be established in another passive sense. The things that are true are the things that can be depended upon. Truth is, uh, it is a reality that we have through God's word and through the manifestation of Jesus Christ, who is the true one and who truly gives life to everyone who believes in him. So, number two, our mind's greatest search is a search for truth. And we are called to fear God with our mind. Number three in your outline is about goodness. Beauty, truth, and goodness. Our will's greatest choice is a choice for good. And so we fear God with our will. Look down at verse 11. The words of the wise, Travis stopped here when he was reading, and and rightfully so. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, for they are given by one shepherd. Your shepherd reference is probably capitalized in your Bible, uh, being a reference to our good shepherd, to Christ. This is pretty interesting because it's the first time that we've seen a reference to a shepherd We've seen a reference to a king, a philosopher, to a wise man, to a fool. We've seen references to a lot of people, to workers, to lovers, to planters, to gardeners. But we have never seen a reference to shepherd, a shepherd in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And it makes you think twice, right? Because typically when you think about a shepherd, you think about somebody who is caring, watchful, kind, concerned. The shepherd goes the distance to care for the one sheep that got away, and he leaves the 99, right? But, but this reference to shepherd in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, seems to bring up a, an idea of pain, hardship, and difficulty. He talks about a goat, and a, and a goat is a tool from the trade of a shepherd. It's a sharp stick that spurs a stubborn animal to keep on moving, um, Jordy Nelson today has a thousand head of cattle in Kansas. Uh, he knows a little bit about keeping those cattle moving, prodding those, those beasts with a, with a goad, perhaps at, time, at times. <clears throat> if a beast goes to the left, you poke him with the goad, and he gets back on track. If a beast goes to the right, you poke him with the goad, he gets back in the, in the path you want him to go. If he stops, another good poke. Keep him going. Keep him going. The only way to avoid pain was to go where the shepherd desired. Now, here's the question. How can a shepherd be good and still inflict pain at the very same time? How can we call this shepherd good if he delivers pain and if he does inflict pain? Kafka wanted to read books that would wound him and stab him in his heart. He has a phrase in one of his books that they would serve as an axe for the frozen sea inside of us. You guys believe that about the the word of God and the painful word of God at times? 
Let me give you a quick summary of, of what I think is going on right here in, in this verse. It's a quote from David Gibson in his book on Ecclesiastes. He says it this way. It may be hard to learn that if you want to know and love and walk with God all your days, then what you need is some pain. It may be hard to learn that if you want to know and love and walk with God for all your days, then what all of us will need is some pain. So God's goodness and his word is like a cattle prod. It pokes us when we go astray. It gets us back on the path, the straight path, of following Christ and carrying out his will. There's no Apple maps for your soul. God uses pain to keep you on the path in which you should go. Painful words from God. God's word tells us and nails us. It nails us in our heart and in our conscience. And even though God's word provides words of pleasure, it can also inflict us with words of pain. Look down at verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and so much study is weariness of the flesh. Every, every college student, you know, don't make that your life verse motto. Right? Just keep studying, keep going hard, make good grades. Verse 13. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. I want to end with a... <clears throat> Just an illustration from The Great Divorce, our college class is reading through this book right now. It's a, it's a wonderful metaphorical account from C.S. Lewis. And, and at the end of this book, he, he meets with a, a person who is walking near the gates of heaven, and he is given an invitation to come into heaven, although he himself is not a believer. This man is from the suburbs of hell, and he claims he spent his whole life seeking truth seeking the answers that he wanted, asking questions. And he loves just asking questions and engaging into dialogue. He loves gaining knowledge. He loves trying to prove himself as an intelligent person. The man had much study, and he made many books. He is the man that is described here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And again, by invitation, he is allowed to enter into heaven, by, but only by a warning. And in the book, uh, of course, this is metaphorical. This is an allegorical account. Um, the Spirit of God talks to him as he comes in, and he says this, I can promise you, speaking to this um, wise man that is always studying and always trying to learn, I can promise you no atmosphere of inquiry in heaven, for I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but I will bring you to the land of answers, and you shall see the face of God. Not ready for this response, the man replies. He says, for me, for me there is no such thing as final answers. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? So the Spirit responds to him. Once you were a child, once you know what, knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Become that child again. And the man replies, and he, refu he sadly refuses. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And the conversation suddenly ends right there. The man remembers that he has an appointment uh, 
and he rushes off to join a discussion group in hell. Turning down the invitation of the, of the gospel. If you give yourselves to an unending quest for knowledge, that quest will end up only in frustration. At some point in time, you have to seek answers, true answers. We would call this truth, objective truth. Truth that aligns itself with reality. And until you find that objective truth and that reality, not only will your life have no meaning and no significance, but you will never find peace and rest with God. But if you search for the answers, if you give your mind to the greatest search, which is the search for truth, if you give your heart to the greatest desire, which is a desire for God, if you give your will to the greatest good, which is a choice for God's goodness, then you can have peace and rest with God. And the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God and the truth and the goodness of the beauty of the gospel will give you contentment and satisfaction. And they will anchor your soul no matter what is going on in life. They will give you purpose, meaningfulness, and significance. They will give you an identity that is beyond anything, anything that this world finds as fleeting, temporary, here today and gone tomorrow. Let's, uh, let's just apply this and what it means to fear God, okay? Number one, as we apply this text, the one central duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandment. The one thing that all of us must do if we don't do anything else in life, it all boils down to this, fearing God. And what does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to have a profound respect for his holiness. To fear God means that everything that you do in life actually matters. To fear God means that you understand that God is going to judge every person and every deed that is ever done in eternity. In his perfect judgment, he will bring all things to light. And so when we fear God, we walk with him in a way that is respectful of his holiness. We don't just haphazardly make decisions here and, and make choices there that that we can just put to the side and, and move forward through. We actually make decisions that matter for eternity. To fear God is a disposition. To fear God is, is a lifestyle. To fear God is to worship God and to worship him alone. When we come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, when he says that there is one duty for all mankind and there is one thing that we must all do, and he brings up this idea of fearing God, He's making a distinction between two types of worship. There are those who worship God, and there are those who worship someone or something else. And there is no choice of if you will worship. The only choice is who or what you will worship. The person who fears God has a disposition and a heart that worships God above all things, that takes him at his word as true that sees him as good and sees the truth of the gospel as the most beautiful thing that we have in this world to reflect the truth of God. Number two, fearing God means valuing his truth, goodness, and beauty in the proper order. And hang with me, I just wanna flesh this out one last time. Beauty is not absolute. Beauty is something that points beyond itself. For someone to say that uh, this person is beautiful can be a very subjective claim. There has to be something beyond that that determines. There has to be a standard 
There has to be something we can go to to say, yep, you're absolutely right, that is beautiful, or no, it is not objectively beautiful. Goodness, which is beyond beauty, is still dependent on truth. Truth is absolute only if it is real or if it is the truth of being. That means this. Beauty is an idol if you worship it as absolute without truth. Beauty is an idol if you worship it as good when there is no goodness to it and there is no truth beyond it. But if you put good above beauty, and if you put truth above beauty, then something can really be beautiful. And that is what our heart delights in the most. To fear God, your desire for beauty must be held in check by what is good. And it must be held in check by what is true. What is good is that which we see in God. That is his perfect character. It is that which the Bible calls holy. It is the revelation of God himself. Truth both trumps and confirms all forms of beauty and all forms of goodness. Are you hearing what I'm saying with this logical progression? All of us, because of sin, every single one of us in this room, desperately want something that is beautiful. We think we find it in something that is not good and not true. And then we end up pursuing an image or a false beauty that turns out to be not beautiful. And it leaves us wanting for something more, desperately wanting something more, or wanting that same thing over and over again, just more and more of it until we realize that it is not ultimately going to fulfill. Everything about us, because of sin, because our hearts are inclined to sin, wants to find beauty in this world. Everything about us wants to find something to delight in. But if we find something that's like that, that is not good and that is not true, it will only disappoint. Those are idols of the heart. And so here's what we have to do. We have to back away from those idols and we have to say, this is not God. This is not true. This is not good. And therefore, it is not beautiful. We confess those things that we once thought were beautiful. We repent of them. We lay them and we shatter them at the foot of the cross and we turn to Jesus and the truth of the gospel because he is the one thing that is beautiful, true, and good. And without those three things, you cannot fear God and put your loves in order. Ecclesiastes leaves us with a note. It seems to end with a note of judgment. Ecclesiastes ends with a note of grace and mercy. It ends with a reminder. The things that you find in this world that convince you are beautiful are not that way, and they will be judged so by God for eternity. The things you find in the person of Christ and the goodness of God and the truth of God and the beauty of the gospel, they are the things that ultimately satisfy they are the things that will never disappoint us. They are the things that give us significance, identity, and eternal hope. And so we rest on the truth of God in Jesus, the beauty of God in the gospel, 
in the goodness of God and his word. Sometimes it's really, really painful. That's why the community is here to help us out through these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we close up uh, Ecclesiastes, and um, my prayer, of course, is that we will remember Solomon's warnings to us, that we will learn from his example. Um, I pray that we would, we would take away the one central thing for all of our life, which is to fear God. Help us to put our priorities in order. Help us to put our loves and our fears in order. As we walk away from the book of Ecclesiastes, we pray that you would remind us daily that truth, goodness, and beauty is only found in you and everything else will disappoint us. Help us to be defined and and marked as people who fear God and keep your word. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.